Ayo, hey, it's Cidro. Holler at the people. 10,000 tacos. Welcome to 10,000 Tacos. 10,000 Tacos is a podcast that takes a look at the world, the taco world and beyond, through the eyes of a taquero. I'm Isidro Salas, your host, and I grew up in a taco truck, and I want to share with you those experiences and many of those lessons that have shaped the way I look at the world today. 10,000 Tacos. Today, we welcome a person who I've been waiting to meet for quite some time now. He, too, has a podcast. It's called Taco City. He is podcasting about the people making tacos and featuring their stories. But what's important is that he's also respecting the culture while he's talking about these things. We finally got a chance to get together a couple of weeks ago, and I'll tell you, we could have talked forever. Our conversation was insightful And it was fun. We decided we'd share this conversation with you in two parts. This part of the conversation is about his journey and some of his thoughts on not just tacos, but also about podcasting. The other part of our conversation is going to be on his podcast. So please, I humbly ask that you go and download the other part of this conversation. I'll have a link to his podcast, Taco City in our show notes. I'd also ask you to subscribe and catch up on some of his other episodes, especially if you're planning a trip to the LA area and you would like to visit some of the places he's featured on both his book and his podcast. So without further ado, here is our conversation. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks, and I, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Oh, cool, man. This is actually an honor for me because you know, through the power of social media, I was in Paris with my wife and I was looking through podcasts and who else is doing stuff like this? And I bumped into yours. And after I listened to it, I was really impressed. And we'll get more into that a little later, but I was very impressed with it because you're doing some things that I think you're doing us a big favor. And again, we'll, we'll get into the us a little bit later, right. but uh, tell us a little bit about you and your, your show. I was, I was born and raised in Rosemead, which is a suburb of in Southern California near Pasadena, so just east of downtown Los Angeles. So I've lived here all my life, except for a few stints in Denver and New Mexico. And my show is based on a book that I wrote called Taco City, Los Angeles, which was about 70 tacadillas in L.A. I tried to get a good cross-section of the whole LA, all of L.A. County and let people know if you go into this place and you can only order one thing, here's the thing that you should order and here the you know this place has got great parking or this place is kind of funky so you should do this well it kind of hacks for getting around them and so the podcast is an extension of that book but covering everywhere so i want the podcast to appeal to people all across the united states and basically talk about the stories of the people behind the taquerias and um, the people who have carts who have restaurants who struggle some of them who have struggled and you know turned their place into a big business some of them who are still struggling day to day but I, I wanted to be able to tell their story and see and that's what attracted me to your show in that you wanted to tell these stories of of you know and it, it, it could be anybody just not just Mexicans or Latin Americans it could be anybody that wants to start a business right so that's what I was really appealed to listening to your show but 
what got you into that? What what made you go towards not just Taco City, the food, the culture? How was your upbringing? Like something must have happened that you you chose good side over bad side because this is a good thing right there's some people that go and exploit things like this right but you you obviously chose the side of i want to do something good that's that's an interesting that's a good question i don't know that i've been asked that question in that way before i'm White. I grew up in a neighborhood. Rosemead in the in the eighties and the seventies was. Um, I feel like the neighborhood I grew up in was a cross between Hispanic, white, Chinese, and Vietnamese. That seemed to be the if I if I think about the friends that I had. When was your childhood? Up, uh, I mean, if we're talking middle school, we're talking eighties. <laughs> Mostly, I mean, so we're around the same born age, in the seventies or seventy. Yeah. yeah, so so I was. I, we're talking old enough to kind of you know be able to go out on your own and play with friends and do things. It was probably around nineteen eighty, and I was in high school and in middle school and high school in the eighties. So, so in that in that time period, I know that my my best friend for a long time was Hispanic, and then I had a best friend who was Chinese and one who was Vietnamese. So it felt like. I was exposed, and when I think about it, when I was younger, I had a few white friends, but most of my friends weren't actually white. And I don't know if it's because they just weren't a lot of other white people in the neighborhood or that I just, I gravitated towards. I was smart. I was the kid who got all A's in middle school and in grade school, and then I got to high school and stopped caring. Um, but <laughs> so I, so a lot of the smartest kids were like the, the Asian kids, and the, my friends were Chinese and Vietnamese, and so we bonded over like math and and so then I would go to their houses and try their food. My parents were not, I mean, my mom cooked at home, but it was always like, like, here's roast chicken. Here's my chili. Here's my beef stew here. Everything was very like white in terms of what we made. And I, I felt like my experience as a kid to Mexican food was this place called Angie's up the street. And I would get a bean and cheese burrito or a tostada. And that was it. And so it wasn't until I felt like I, I was an adult before I started to explore. I'd never had sushi or Japanese food. I'd never had Indian food or Thai. I'd never had real Mexican food until I got into my, like, right around 19 or 20. And then I started to realize, like, oh, there are all these things that I haven't tried that I was never exposed to. And then and so I'd always gone into it with an open mind in terms of food. I, like I'll try anything once, and then some things I might not like, and some things you know I'll have an affinity towards. And Mexican food has always been a draw for me everywhere I've lived. I lived in San Diego for a little while, and there's amazing Mexican food down there because the closer you get to the border, I feel like you know not that LA is not authentic, but definitely in San Diego there's there's this great cross section of good Mexican food. And so for a long time it was just my love of food and learning how to cook and teaching myself how to cook things and make things long before there was a book on tacos. That's very interesting because that's a similar thing that I experienced growing up where our friends, they weren't, the majority of them were Mexicans, but I, I had black friends, I had white friends. It wasn't a big deal. It, and so to hear that, you weren't raised in an area where there's nothing but white. Right. Okay. If I'd been in like Arcadia and Temple City, which are both like adjacent to Rosemead, those... Both those areas are actually have high Asian populations, but there's probably more. Those neighborhoods are a little bit um, richer, and we were 
we were middle class. We were middle class. I mean, we rented, and I we always had like food on the table. And my dad worked. We weren't rich by any means at all, and we were middle, if not middle, lower. Like we got by. My parents paid their bills, but my mom was always stretching stuff with food. And you know, like I'm gonna make, I'm gonna cook you this because I can make this meal, and it will last for like two or three meals, and it's not super expensive. And yeah, I feel like I just grew up in a neighborhood that was a good cross section of different cultures, which as an adult, I'm glad that I did. And that I wasn't in some like sheltered all white neighborhood where then as an adult, you get exposed to other people and you're like, whoa, how, how has, how do your, how has the LA area changed uh, in the last, uh, let's say a decade or so? It's, it's interesting because I live now in an area where the riots were happening. I live near USC and like, I guess south of LA. It's now called South LA, but it's not really South Central. It's more like the West Adams district. Well, I find photos from the riots and there's a place up the street for me that was on fire. Like there was looting. And, and so that whole neighborhood in, the, in that time period was it been 25 years. My whole neighborhood is made up of families. It's all families with children. It's like... 80% Hispanic, maybe 15% black and like 5% everyone else. But it's but there's not gang activity in the neighborhood not any more than any other place in in most parts of LA. I feel like a lot of those areas that were volatile then are not volatile in the same way now. I don't know that I feel like Los Angeles has grown and in, in that we're any better at with racism and with prejudice in the city, I feel like it just it's just adjusted, especially in 2018. I don't know that it's but, uh, but I remember when the the riots uh, and it, it wasn't just the Rodney King because a lot of that stuff was happening before. Did you ever see that movie Colors with Ice T? Yeah, a long time ago, I did. Um, the other Boys in the Hood, mm-hmm. right? And they were telling those stories about how police activity. Now, what I'm getting at is. You're, you're, can I say you're white? Yeah, you can say white. Yeah. <laughs> um, how was it being a white person in that area? Um, and I'll tie this into what it is to what, where I'm getting to where, where with Mexican food or Latin food, but how was it coming? How were, were you ever in fear? The, I remember driving through. El Monte, because El Monte's close, with a friend of mine who was also white. He had, like, red hair and getting pulled over by the cops. And the cops actually, like, we got pulled over. We were heading to someone's house, and the cops were, you were immediately thought we were looking for drugs. I remember I, at that point, I had cashed my paycheck at, like, a paycheck cashing place, so I had a big wad of cash, which does not look good when the cops <laughs> pull you over because they thought we were buying drugs. Which yeah, we, but honestly, a white guy with cash is different we, than a black guy with cash. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, the, the cops Sorry, totally planted. They had He pulled out a baggie of what he said was weed in the trunk, and there was no... It wasn't my car, but the guy I was with was like, there was no weed in the, in the trunk. And the cops tried to... I think they were trying to bait us. Like, come on, we know you're going to go buy drugs. We're going to buy drugs. Wow. We were going to someone's house to go drink, and that was it. We were going to go drink beers. And I remember... You know, they had us up against the car. They were calling us names. I, I just, I remember being in fear at that point, being like, I didn't actually do anything wrong. Um, and why are we, we got pulled over because they followed us going slow through the neighborhood and just, and yeah. so, like, I always feel, for me, there is this, this 
guilt in that I'm like, it's it's got to suck to grow up and have that fear all the time because I don't have it. And it's wrong that other people have to fear like the police. But you experience it. That is, yeah. see, that's where I'm trying to get at is I, I respect what you're doing with your podcast because it's not just about the food, which we'll get into later, but you've experienced that. And I totally forgotten about that until you just asked me about it right now. Because I, you know, it's not. See, I had a feeling. I had a feeling you, 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 you know. <laughs> we were in a Hispanic neighborhood. We were in the neighborhood a, a few blocks away from the very first real taqueria I'd ever had tacos at. Not the same day, but we were like off San Gabriel Boulevard and the south side of the 10 freeway in, in El Monte. And um, I, yeah, I just remember, I remember the fear for like hours afterwards, like being paranoid and just trying to work it through my brain. Like, what did I do wrong? And like, yeah. why? Yeah. And. To be somebody who has to go through that on a constant basis, like it's horrible. Yeah, no, and that's that's what I was trying to get. And so what I experience is that being an immigrant to this country, we lived in fear the for the first for the first ten years. A lot of it is because we were illegals, but I just knew that being le- you know, we weren't even speaking in those terms back then. It wasn't legal or illegal. It was just. Right. It was you just knew you didn't have your papers, but the food that people cooked, whether they're legally here or not, it didn't matter. Right? No, it didn't. Right? And well, there it, was a period in the '80s with Reagan, and I was probably wasn't paying enough attention. Where th- was there like? Yeah. Not that it's as bad yeah. as it is now with the wall, the the quote unquote wall, and everything else. Reagan but, was a Republican, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, where it was, where it was not great either. I remember. I just. It's funny because I never thought of like friends I had in school. I never thought about who was legal or illegal and I didn't care. I wouldn't have cared. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's ridiculous because immigrants are what make up this country. So the fact that we're having this problem trying to talking about we have a problem with immigrants and keeping people out. That's what the country is based on. So I don't ever I just don't ever understand why we would keep people from wanting to come here. Yeah. And, you know, I think that. The today modern word um, illegal is today the same word as wetback. So yes, which is a word that I heard. It's derogatory, up. Yeah. but it's being used so loosely. People use it. Oh, illegals! They're, they're really mean. And and I say this because I read a story where this guy in Philadelphia opened up a taqueria, and he called it illegal tacos. Which <sighs> at first I was like, let me give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Right. So I'm like, I'm thinking, yeah, it's he's probably got some hot sauce that he's saying, man, this sauce is so hot. It should be illegal. Right. I was trying to think. maybe (laughs) That's a good way to put a positive spin on it. Yeah, I was looking at it from the positive side. But then I read an interview he had and he said, yeah, no, uh, I'm an immigrant, too. So and I looked more. He's he's from Armenia. And he says that. And and then I looked at his logo and his logo was a sombrero and then tacos underneath and a big mustache on the bottom uh-huh. who's he emulate who what's he saying right and that's the problem i well, see could today. not be more stereotypical yeah. i thought you were gonna say his logo was the sign that you see when you're in san diego of the like of the family the children running yeah yeah i remember the first time i ever saw that on the freeway when i lived down there i was just fascinated i was like there's really a sign and then i researched it and realized the yeah. signs there because people were getting killed people yeah. running across the freeway <laughs> like, i'm glad you bring that up man because there are sometimes, you know, under in the 80s, the atmosphere was still uh, during Reagan years in this economy. I, I mean, we were kids, right? right? But we were old enough to understand that 
things were happening. There's always something going on. And so the period you're referring to in the 80s was amnesty. Right. So that's where we won the lottery because we had only been here for, I think, six years, six or seven years. And then overnight, we became legal residents. That's like winning the lottery. There were families that got here three days after that mm-hmm. that are still not legal in this country, but they've lived here all their lives. And some of these people have taquerias that all these people are talking about now and, right. and that, oh, this is great food. And they might not know that they're, even though they're illegal here, they're making some great, great ass food. Right. And, you know, I, I was, again, talking to you about this. Uh, I wanted to get your experience of that because I, I want some of our listeners, all of our listeners to see your perspective of growing up with this food. And now what you're doing is you're podcasting about it. You're, you're talking about it. But the other part that I admire is that you put so much effort into getting the history. So um, one of your earlier episodes, uh, Chicha needs, I can't mm-hmm. pronounce Chichen it. Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, what was that like? What was that researching that? Chichen, I think Chichen Itza was interesting because that might have been the one where I went all the way back to the dinosaurs. Did I talk about them? There was an episode where I had to do that part of Mexico, and I, I had researched. What happens is generally I'll go back and figure out, okay, the, here's here's Chichen Itza. What is the history of, like, who lived here, and then how did it become what it is today? And generally the villains of every single history I have to tell are the Spaniards because the Spaniards <laughs> came in and destroyed everything. Um and so, you know, it's usually, oh, the native the native Mexicans in this part were fine. They were living a lot. And then the Spaniards came in and built a church and forced them all. And then eventually they uprose and kicked the Spaniards out. And then, you know, Mexico became what it is now. Um, that, there was one episode, and it might have been Chichen Itza, where they talked about some of the first cooking in some of the first cooking tools they'd ever found dating all the way back were found in that part of Mexico. And from all the world. So I thought, oh, it's cool. Like some of the first times man was cooking was in that part of Mexico. And I thought, what, what is the, I thought, where did the, um, where did the dinosaur, like, I started to think about the dinosaurs and like, where did that happen? And they were, they had been living in that area at one point too. And then I, I thought about the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. So I, like, what was that meteor? What was that meteor called? So I'm researching and it's the Chicxulub extinction event. And I thought, oh, where did the meteor hit? And then I look on the map, and it's literally Chichen Itza. And there's a spot there where the meteor landed at that point that caused the extinction event that killed the dinosaurs and, like, reset. And, of course, eventually man came. And and I thought, oh, my God, it, like, totally goes back to the area where the restaurant is from. And so I tried to tie it together with the history of Chichen Itza itself. Like, here's what happened way back you know, millions of years ago, millions of years ago. And then, you know, here's how Chichen Itza formed a society and here's the, the why they cook the way that they do. And now here's a guy with a restaurant called Chichen Itza and here's what he brought from that place. Yeah, and seeing that, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that's the most, aside from trying to set up interviews with restaurant people and chefs, which is impossible because they work so many hours per day and trying to pin people yeah. down, is that is the hardest part, is the research. If I could go back to high school me 
who hated history and, and whisper in my ear and go, dude, you're going to need to use this later on. Later on in life, you're going to be doing a podcast. I don't, you don't know what that is. Yeah. But you're going to need all this history background. Trust no, me. And, and I think that that's one of the things that fascinates me about your podcast is that you're, you're putting in the work. A lot of uh, my experience, my parents put in a lot of work. And I'm not comparing you to my parents. Unless you can make some good salsa. <laughs> Uh, which you would have to compete with my wife, but but it's this labor that I could see being transmitted that you enjoying it. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. A, you enjoy it, but B, if you you don't have to put in the work, but it shows if you don't. And we've all heard podcasts where or YouTube shows where somebody didn't. It's very clear somebody just grabbed a microphone or grabbed a camera and just kind of sloppily did something and then put it up. And you can tell when you're listening, like, oh, well, this person just, you know, went in and reviewed this taqueria. Um, I went into Tito's Tacos, and here's what it, here's crunching sounds of me eating the taco. This place <laughs> is pretty good. You should come here. The end. Yeah. Um, we could all make that podcast. I just wanted to make something that made more of an impact. I didn't want to do a show that was just Yelp, but in, in yeah. audio form. I wanted to do something where I felt like I could educate people and something that was that appealed to me because if I have to do this and spend like a full time amount of job amount of work on it, I wanted to be able to love what I did. But you're also learning it. That's the yes. other thing. And I I hear, hear that. Like you had this episode where you and your wife made the tortillas, right? <laughs> yes, that was recently. Yes. Yeah, and you know, so what was that experience like? I mean, I mean, it's obvious that wasn't. There are some recipes uh, in my podcast. I'll do the first half of the episode is a taqueria and a, and a history, uh-huh. and then the second half is me teaching you how to cook something. There's some episodes where I'm literally making it up on the, like I figured it out, but I've never made it before. So obviously, if it turns out crappy, you'll never hear it. And knock on wood, that has yet to happen. But with the tortillas, it's it's such a simple quote unquote thing because it's masa flour and it's water. If you're going to make corn tortillas, and you think, oh, how hard could that be? But it depends on the consistency. It's almost like a podcast. Right. Huh? Oh my how god, the consistency <laughs> has to be right. And then some days, if it's more humid outside or it's more dry you have to adjust the recipe because the the dough is too sticky and the they aren't and you've got to know to put like uh, wax paper in the in the tortilla press because otherwise it's going to stick there's all these little things every time i do them they're different than the time i did them before and they're never they still have yet to be exactly where i want them to be yeah uh one of my things i've always wanted to open up a, a tortilleria mm-hmm. and i thought it was going to be a lot easier i can't nobody's building these machines and you no. covered a little bit about that from your other episode where you talked to the guy that, uh, the blue tortillas, which by the way, if you guys want to hear a pretty good episode about a family, cause he, he, he invited you over to his mom's house. He did. We, we, we drove 60 miles away. We thought it was a, I thought it was a truck. He found me through the podcast, uh-huh. Corazon Azul, yeah. Azul. And he, Luis was like, Hey man, I love your podcast. I love to cook for you from, and he had a truck. So I thought, Oh, we're going to where his truck is located. So we show up, and I pull up, and it's a house. And I was like, is he cooking in the house? And we go in, and he and his mom, for two hours, just kept... She was cooking. He was bringing me stuff out. I just recorded the entire conversation. I didn't really know what to expect. I wasn't going in there thinking it was going to be an episode. But when I left, you know, I said, dude, we have a lot... There's a lot of great yeah. stuff. Do you yeah. mind if I turn this into um, an episode? And it was not his plan either. He was like, I just wanted to cook for you. Yeah. I just... Because your love of of Mexican food and and like respect for the culture and the history. I wanted to show you what I've done and what I do with blue corn tortillas, which is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Like he has to grind them himself. He has a special machine because you can't find them made handmade at places most of the time because you have to clean the machine completely before you switch it to white or yellow. 
So what was it like to be in a house where his mom was making that food? Like, was it, was it almost like Disneyland? Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> she, he just kept saying, oh, she, you know what else she does? She does this. Do you want that? And I'm like, how am I going to say no? Like, I was, I'm like, I'm getting full, but I don't really care. So just keep bringing me food. I just won't eat the rest of the day. By the and way, she, when I go down to Southern California, hopefully I could go to his house too. So yeah, you yeah, got to so introduce us. I'll, I was, I'll have to introduce <laughs> you to him. Um, you know, he, he's like... When we grew up, we grew up poor, and we made this. My mom made this bean soup. It was basically refried beans and a little bit of cheese and some pico. Like it was basically pico de gallo, like tomatoes and onion. And while he's telling me, describing this, his his mom's in the back, and she's like, "Do you want me to make them some?" And my wife at that point was like, "I'm I'm done. I can't eat anymore." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, totally bring me some." He was like, "And how'd you like another quesadilla?" Okay, uh, tamales. You <laughs> yeah, guys oh. took and some then time. he sent me a dozen tamales. How <laughs> blue corn tortilla tamales? That's I, awesome. Um, That's awesome. He also talked about the permitting process, which yes. is another thing that I've been sort of keeping up. L.A. County is trying to, I don't know if they've done this already, where it's, I wouldn't say easier, but uh, street food and street vending is becoming, uh, what, they, what do you They know keep about? talking about doing it, but they haven't done it yet. So nothing has changed. So you could buy weed, but you can't. You can still get busted for selling for selling food on the side of the street, which is ridiculous. What and so as you've been on this journey, how what what are your thoughts on that? Where I want my listeners, I'd like that the the listeners get an idea of, of what it is to be an immigrant, right? What's your take on that? On people trying to sell food on the streets. Um, some of the best food, if we're just talking tacos and, and Mexican food, some of the best food I've ever had have been the nondescript people that are selling it on the side of the street. Uh, there's a guy on the corner of Western and Venice in L.A. My wife used to drive by on the way home from work, and it was just a guy with, with a table, like a folding table set up, one table with the grill on it, one table with like all the ingredients, and he would set up at night and sell. And one night we were coming back together. And we had cash, and she was like, oh, my God, we have to stop at this. Every time I drive by here, the guy's got a line, and it smells amazing. We stopped. The tacos were so good. He had no name. No, it wasn't like there was nothing on there. And I thought I would, like, love to interview this guy. But I'll, this guy is just making – he's just trying to, like, support himself. Yeah. Or or maybe he has, he's at a day job, but he needs extra money, and he's doing this. And he could get busted if I. Yeah. He doesn't. This guy doesn't want here. more notoriety. Like I'm, he would I'm like glad to be you busy. Bring that up. Yeah. Um, which is which is sad because I want I want to be able to tell listeners to go there, but I also don't want someone from LA County Health Department to you go know, shut him down. And out. that happened not too long ago in this part. I mean, in the day and age that we live in today, you could transmit information so fast on Twitter on everywhere, right. right? And I read a story and then I looked at the video because it made the news where these these guys these people were were selling tacos in this one it was a little taqueria on the sidewalk somewhere and it was already well known in the internet community and then the next day or something like that the the county went over there and shut them down and people were like well what the hell happened so you know the dichotomy right people right. want this but yet, who are the people calling the cops? Right? Or, or co- no, right? exactly. I, I know somebody who did who was doing their front yard, and one of their neighbors because he got so busy that eventually people were blocking driveways, parking on the street. The traffic was bad, and so then all it takes is one neighbor to complain, and then the health department shows up. Man, um, Mexicali Taco Esdras Ochoa, who started that, he started that was a cart on the side of the street, and food bloggers, and it was when Twitter was starting to take off. Food bloggers and Twitter. 
started to talk about how he had the best carne asada in town and he was doing it Mexicali style and everyone was going to the, the cart and they got super popular. One of his customers at one point said, hey, I'm a real estate guy. Let's open a brick and mortar. I'll be the, you know, I'll be your partner. And I'll, you know, he got, they were fortunate in that they, you know, he designed the menu and, and the restaurant, that guy found a building and a week before they opened, the health department shut the cart down because they got so popular. Of course, I'm sure that the health department is checking those sources for places that, um, but so it's, it sucks because you want people, you want to get popular and you want to be able to make yeah. money, but if you get too popular, you get screwed because you're not in the system. You know, I see a similarity in in the immigrant community. There are some second generation immigrants that want to close the doors down and say, hey, you know, guy that said, you know, during the election a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago that we'd have taco trucks at every corner. Oh, yeah. Remember no, I remember guy? when that was a huge. And a he huge was anti-immigration. This guy is, I, I think he's Mexican. I, he looked Mexican. I don't know. Maybe I'm profiling myself. But also, why is that a bad thing? Why? Yeah. I would love. And so, you know, from my perspective, I'm going like, you're, you sound like you're an immigrant. And now you want to close the doors. And so what I'm seeing in the, you know, that's been going on for a long time in the restaurant industry, right? Mm-hmm. Where, because my, my parents faced that, where they were out there trying to sell and the people who were trying to shut them down were the restaurants. And some of these people were Mexicans. They were like, well, it almost feels like, no, I, I did my hard work. And now that I have a restaurant, you're my biggest threat. And they're the right. ones that, and that's what I keep seeing, unfortunately, in I mean, it's all food. Yeah, it, it is. It, we should band together, but I mean, that's probably a wishful thinking. It's, it's it, like the it's like the argument where they everyone always talks about well, immigrants coming here steal jobs. I always think about the times that I've driven through from L.A. to Northern California and drive through Central California, where all of our produce is, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of immigrants picking the lettuce, the tomatoes, the. Uh, and I, you think about that, and you think, okay, if if those people are doing that job, if they weren't here and they weren't doing that job, are there people? Other white people in this country that are going to go, white people are like, no, I don't want to do that job. I, I feel like they're not stealing jobs. People always talk about they're stealing jobs. I'm like, no, there are plenty of jobs for everybody, but you also act like, like when you come here and you're illegal, you have to find a job yeah. under the table. You can't work. Yeah. Um, you got to find a job where they're not going to ask for a social security number. Often it's really crappy jobs. It's not like there. It's not like somebody, people are coming in all over from country and your people are getting fired and they're going, nope, we're going to hire I just I find the whole thing ridiculous. It it you know I think that all of us have a tendency to to contradict ourselves at some point, right? right. Uh, but some people just do it so blatantly. And an example of that is with that argument. But some people say, well, they're coming over here and taking our jobs. And then on the other end, they're saying, well, our taxpayer dollars are paying. They're lazy. They're not working. I'm going. Wait a minute. I. If you're lazy, <laughs> how can you be taking somebody's job? Like, like there, there's a there's a weird contradiction there. Like, first you're complaining that they're taking jobs, but if they're too lazy to work, how are they taking your jobs? Like, that's <laughs> and I've seen the t- statistics of of um, ethnic makeups that are on, of people that are on welfare and getting food stamps, and the majority of them are legal and often white people that live here versus people that are illegal. Like, those are the people. Everyone always talks about, well, the immigrant, we're paying for being food stamps. No, you're not. It's it's really reversed. There are a lot. Most of the people that are on those programs are people that are legally here. And so they're not stealing anything. You're paying. And often 
one of the problems in this country and, and definitely in California is that people are pay are working a job and being paid. They're not being paid enough to be able to live on. So not yeah. only are you working the job, but you're still on some kind of assistance because it's not enough to survive. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think we're delving off a little bit off the yes, subject, true. but this, you know, it's all connected because one of the things that what makes your show more attractive is that you're going in and then you're interviewing somebody and then you're doing recipes at the end. Right. And how much more would you be getting if people weren't afraid to come forward? Right. Cause you're, you're in an area where you, you just described a few people that they probably don't want to be found out. So you sort of have to, you know, you're going to have to grow your hair and <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to dress, dress like a paisa and go into these to get, to get interviews. But uh, that's where I think bravery that you're going into an area where, and I said this before to you, and I'm glad you didn't get offended that you're an outsider, but you're, you're, you're putting in the work, which is what everybody like immigrants, non-immigrants, that's what they do when you put in the work into something. And so how is that? Have you had some bad experience? It's, where I mean, knock on wood, it's all been it's all been really positive. And I, I was just going to say that people that are the most receptive are are definitely because I'm uh, some of the talkadias I talk to. Some of them are immigrants. Some of them aren't immigrants. Or um, the people that are small places, people that came over here from it may be run by a family, and it's always been run by like a mother and a father and their children. Those places are the most open to talking to me because they see what I'm doing and they're excited that uh, they're excited by the history and by the fact that I'm trying to tell their story and not exploit them or God forbid give them a bad review in some way. The the hardest ones for me are the places that are more corporate because then I end up talking to like a, even if it's they only own three places. I end up talking to somebody who's in marketing and PR and they want to know, well, how many people are listening to your podcast? What's your social media uh, like? And that that's a whole other pitch. Like, oh, I guess now I'm selling the podcast to them versus being able to tell a you know a family's story. Uh, there's always apprehension at first because people were like, What what is you have a podcast? Are you a cop? And they want to listen. <laughs> the first thing they'll do is I'll send them a link and then they listen. And after people listen, they're like, Oh, I see what you're doing. Yeah, we totally love to be on it. Either people no one has come back with negativity. Either they just, if they're not interested, I just don't hear back from them or they want to do it. And then it's just a matter of trying to find time to meet with them and get their story. And so if somebody was starting out in this business as podcasting, what would you tell them? What, what's some of the things? Because you've served on, uh, on Yeah, a, no, on it's um, as somebody who comes from like the entertainment industry as a composer, podcasting is similar in that you... You get it. You get out of it what you put in. So if you create a quality show and you spend the time to do it, people will recognize that. It is a slow build, and you know this too. You know you build your audience a little at a time, and you start off, and a few people are listening, and then they tell people, and a few more. You can't expect ten thousand people to listen to your episode when you have episode one, um, yeah. unless unless you're like Stephen Colbert or like you know if you're if you're a huge name, then obviously you can bring people with you. But if you're just you're just a, a average person and you're doing a podcast it takes time to build that audience and it takes a lot of not only the work that you put into to make the episodes but then all the work to market it and to let people know because if you're not talking about it on social media then people don't always know that you like put another episode out or that you've got an episode yeah. coming um that's 
you know, that's the tedious work that you feel like you're spending all this time doing something that's not paying off, but that's what brings new people to your podcast. And based on your upbringing and your, how you, you, you got, or you were raised in, in a pretty eclectic place, it sounds like, right? Right. Uh, LA is, there's so many cultures, California, right? Except unless you grew up in Beverly Hills or Brentwood. I mean, there's no taquerias (laughs) over there. (laughs) There are no taquerias in Beverly Hills. (laughs) That's a business idea. Somebody out there. That's, (laughs) I don't know that they allow street vendors in Beverly Hills, which is a whole other problem. But the thing is, what what was as as uh, what are some of the things that you hope to see the industry turn into uh, the taco industry? Um, the reason I ask is uh, on one of your episodes, uh, going back to the 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 guy with the blue tortillas. God, I gotta remember his. Oh name. no, Luis uh, yeah. from uh, Corazon Azul. Yeah, and he he had his take on it. So if you're interested to hear his take, go go to that episode. Which episode, by the way, is that? Um, uh, that was like three weeks ago. I guess if you're looking through my the Apple Podcast, yeah. I have them named by location, so it's Corazon Azul. Okay, okay. But he had. I don't know if you could describe a trepidation of what he fears the taco taco craze. Mm-hmm. What's your What's your take? Because I I was hearing the podcast, but what's your thoughts of, of what the current ca- taco craze? Like? Uh- on the plus side, I think the taco craze is good because more people are open to trying tacos and Mexican food that weren't before. However, I, I what I would like people to take away from it is to understand the culture better and to um, to know where the food is coming from and to, to at least be able to respect where these recipes came from initially when, and that it's not Taco Bell and that it's that that Mexican food is the same culture. And if you go to Mexico, um, and in different parts of Mexico, food is made differently. One of the best experiences I ever had, I have friends that, a friend that organized taco crawls for a couple of years. We did two in LA. We hit like 15 places in one day back to back and had one taco at each place. That's the one you, you said you went down to. Antenna, well, the third or- one, he, um, his uncle, um, Uncle Chewy, uh, built a house in Tijuana. He lives in Tijuana. He built his own house down there. So he was like, we're going to go down and spend the night and stay with Uncle Chewy. And about... Six or seven of us went. We drove across, and his and Uncle Chewy took us in his. You didn't vehicle. have a problem crossing the border from here to there, right? No, no okay. actually, <laughs> getting in is easy. There's like there was just a guy standing there being like, "Whatever." It's like going inside. through Costco, huh? Yeah. <laughs> was, I think we didn't even slow down. It was like sixty miles an hour. Um, it took us forever to get back in. Um, we went down there. We drove to Uncle Chewy's. He got in his vehicle and drove us around all the places. Um, you know, my friend. Um, had a list, but then Chewy told us like, "Oh, you need to go to this place. It's near my house." Some of the best food I've ever had was was down there. Like all the people were really friendly. Everything was nice. The, all of um, Tijuana, as it's by itself, it felt a little like being in LA. Like it just felt like a city. It wasn't. I would send pictures. I was doing pictures on Twitter at the time. Uh-huh. Most of the people would say, oh, that looks amazing. You get the people who were like, well, it's scary down there. I hope you can keep your head or I wouldn't eat that. Do you know where that came from? Don't get sick. Like there's all the foul, all the false, the things that people um, associate with being down there. It was, it was such an awesome, like welcoming experience. We spent the night and then the next morning we went to, and to some more taquerias. Um, and we, um, at the end of the, just before we came back across, we were in um, is it Revolution the the main boulevard, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we were we were all the shopkeepers were like, please tell your friends to come down here and that it's safe because at that point, this was like 2010, maybe 2011. Everyone was 
there was a point where everybody was afraid there was more, so there was a little bit more violence yeah. over the side of the border, yeah. and then people stopped coming over. And so they were like, it's gone. Everything is safe. Please tell people to come because the shops were empty. And and I went over, I just went back thinking like, oh my God, that place is, is amazing. I would go back there over and over again if I lived a little bit closer to the, to the border, if I lived in San Diego. Like it's, you know, it doesn't feel any less safe than being in LA. Yeah, no, I'm glad you say that because I've even fallen for the fear bug. There was a time that I didn't want to go back to Mexico because I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I don't feel safe. But, you know, where do we get that information from? Right? <laughs> no, get that's it, exactly we right. We get it from news outlets. We get it from, and today we're just bombarded with so much. And I'm glad you bring that up. And I know there are parts yeah. where you, there are th- places you stay away from. There are places where the cartel is bigger and that you just don't travel off on a road. That's no different than living in Los Angeles. There are parts of Los Angeles you probably shouldn't just hang out in at midnight or one o'clock in the morning um, because there's a lot more gang activity. You use common sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. I agree. But the food is awesome there. I've not been to TJ Tijuana in a long time. We, I had some pretty good stories growing up. Uh, we would drive down there a lot. A few of my friends went down to, they were in San Diego State in the early mm-hmm. 90s. And we'd go down there and, and man, um, let's, just, let's just say that I didn't know you can fit about 12 people in the backseat of a cop car. Uh, you, you don't want to be that first guy that gets arrested because <laughs> yeah, exactly that's, how, that's what happened to one of my friends he got he just took a drink outside in that in, in you know from a club out to the sidewalk and within a matter of seconds woo, and so we thought oh you know what he's we'll, we'll go pick him up at the at the at the police station and we get to the police station and he's not there yet and finally yeah, this car pulls up and there's like 12 people get out and he's the one at the oh man <laughs> so he the was the one first in. one <laughs> But uh, those are good times. He's still alive, thankfully. No, but uh, I'm glad you bring that up because I'm, I'm thinking of taking my wife down to Mexico. Uh, I have family that lives down there. And I'm looking forward to it because uh, I've not been there in a long time. My, my, my brothers just recently, two of my brothers recently went to where we were from. And they came back a little bit enlightened. They were like, wow. They, you know, it's been a while. And they, they, were, they came back going, wow. Mexico has so many areas and regions of food. And I can't wait for you to discover more of that stuff. Because it's not just tacos. Every episode, when I find some new part of Mexico, it just goes on this list that I told my wife. Like, we our short list of places to visit in Mexico is getting larger and larger. So, because initially, it was like, well, we got to go to Mexico City. And now it's like, now we have to go here in the Yucatan. Now we got to go to this place. We need to go to Amica. And like, my list just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I'm like, now it's a three-week trip, and we're just going to have to travel all around <laughs> Mexico to all these, and mostly because of the food, because the food is different in every single region. Yeah, yeah. No, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you're probably going to get more recommendations once some, some of our audience members say, well, you should come here, which is no, a good definitely, thing. definitely, yeah. So that concludes this part of the episode. Uh, again, go over to Taco City so that you could get the second part of our conversation in which Rob ask me a few questions and gets to know me a little bit more uh, again we had such a good time doing this and i hope that you can go and uh, look up his episode his his podcast is truly unique we do find a lot of people who do reviews of places but what rob brings to the table is one he respects the culture two he works tremendously hard to give you some information which he goes and researches and brings to the table and then on top of that he can show you through some recipes and that anybody 
can truly cook this kind of food, this special kind of food. So again, I appreciate you downloading this episode. But if you do us that favor to go over and check out his podcast, that would be tremendously great. But uh, the other thing that I will say is usually I end our episodes with a taco. If you go ahead and download his episode and listen to it, he gives us a special gift. He ends the episode with a taco and it's very special. So again, thanks for joining us and thanks again, Rob. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I'm Isidro Salas and this is 10,000 Tacos. Tacos.